I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. On this episode of the Be Here Now Network's guest podcast, Nearby Star and Roshi Joan Halifax answer questions from a live audience about the student-teacher relationship, the power of love, and the need for perseverance. So I think everybody knows Mirabai. We're from New Mexico, and um, we're youthing at this very moment with the beautiful moist air and moist heart here, so... So we'd love to pearl dive. And you know, pearls, no matter what size, shape, or color, all are treasures. So we want you to um, share with us, what did you see? What did you learn? Where was your edge? And when you're ready, just put your hand up and Mike will deliver the mic. Okay, I think we've got a... A taker. Hi, my name's Natasha. 
So with all of these koans, I've seen the same thing, where the guru is also the student, and the student is the guru. So the student breaks the guru's tray, and the guru has had this tray his whole life. He's used it for every practicality in his life. And so he tells the student, I want my tray. Give me my tray. So the student goes out, and he brings him a tray. And that's, that's not good enough. The guru doesn't want that. So he says, give me my tray. He doesn't say, go and get me another tray. He says, give me my tray. I want my tray back. So the student goes out, and time and time again, he's going out and he's doing the same thing. And isn't that the, the description of insanity, when you do the same thing over and over and you expect a different result? So he's feeling, yeah, he's feeling guilty, and he wants to please his guru, so he keeps bringing this tray. But there's got to be a point where it dawns on him that no matter how long he keeps bringing a tray, this tray isn't going to be the guru's tray. And so it's got to dawn on him that he comes to the guru one day and says, I'm sorry, master, I can't give you your tray. Your tray is gone. It's gone. It's not coming back. And, and so the guru then, I think, feels very happy because that's the lesson he was given. He was giving that lesson to the student. So the student, in recognizing the impermanence, that he can't replace it, that it's gone, is now he's, he's crossed that threshold and he's now, in a way, the teacher and he's able to say, it's gone. It's not coming back. And the guru is happy because he wasn't really punishing the student. He was trying to give him that lesson. And, and so it's reciprocal. The teacher-guru thing is reciprocal, and I've seen that in each one of the koans. So there's a breakthrough, and they're both happy. They both benefit equally. <laughs> Wonderful. So I think one of the really powerful things about these folk tales, so they're basically they're public cases or they're folk tales, and they're used for practice, um, is first... So often, as you've pointed out, it's about relationship. Most of the koans involve two people. And those koans are also not separate from who we really are. They're pointing toward intimacy. They're pointing toward non-duality. The very process of practicing with a koan is about non-separation. So, to go to the second point, there's the relational point, which is pointing toward intimacy, which, quotes, the guru is driving toward with the student. But also, um, the guru is not outside of you. The student is not outside of you, nor is the tray, nor is the little hut outside of you the rich field of your life, which often we feel is too small and we're trapped in, and we're in a confined space, the confined space of our life. 
And yet this little hut of this life is called rich field. And the koan is, you point out, is about breaking open to the rich field of just this moment. Returning to this realization that the rich field, as you know from working the story of the mystics, is to recognize that that which serves the tray is also that which is made to serve because it has been broken and then rediscovered. Mirabai, I wonder if you could reflect. Well, I think about the teachings of Teresa of Avila, St. Teresa of Avila, and how she sees the soul in the language of 16th century Spain as a magnificent castle or a palace. And the path to union with God is not up and out of this world. It's deeper and deeper inward into the rich field of the interior Mm. castle. And the way to attain that union with the beloved is by further and further stripping away all the obstacles. And that little hut has only one possession. Only one real possession. In our life, in that small place that seems without any resource, there is only one real possession. And that is the capacity to serve. This clay tray. And... That clay tray can only be re-delivered, brought home, returned when the student, so to speak, that part of us just doesn't go down to the valley and stay and get drunk and party and play, although that's not so bad. But the student keeps returning again and again to the source in this small hut. But that part of ourselves, which is practice and vast. And when that intimacy is realized, as you're saying, Mirabai, between teacher and student, then the capacity that we know within ourselves to really serve, then that cup I spoke about this morning of the the fluid of loving kindness brims over and we recognize our source resource in our return home. I love that, Joan, so much. I love all the parallels, as you probably noticed, between all the traditions. But for Teresa of Avila, I just have to say that there are seven stages of this interior journey and the seventh, the seventh station of union with God, that the result of that union is service. That's the only thing left to do that makes any, any sense of all. So the soul returns from that ultimate intimacy to serve all beings because there, that's when she discovers that there is only one of us. And another powerful part of that is that we can only serve from that which is fragile. And we can only serve from that which can never be replaced because it is actually never broken and never lost. Do you know that feeling? 
One other thing I just want to say is um, in doing the LSD work with dying people and then sitting with dying people from the early 70s on, but the LSD work really broke me open to how vast the human heart is and how vast the capacity is of every individual, even those seriously afflicted with illness, and that we have really underestimated our situation grossly. And in a way, the word esteem, we want to re-estimate. Coming home, which me it means essentially to re-esteem, to re-estimate the capacity of the human heart. And in this way, in uh, my own studies in compassion in relation to social psychology and neuroscience, um, there's a real distinction between empathy and compassion. I'm not going to do that talk here. There are various versions of it on YouTube. But to say that principled and healthy compassion um, creates the condition where the one who serves is elevated feels this sense of joy, there's greater buoyancy, but also those of us who observe, those who are serving, for example, looking at the young people in Nepal self-organizing and delivering rice to these outlying areas before the UN or the government, the local governments can get there. I feel blessed by the service they're rendering. So compassion has this viral aspect it influences us, it uplifts us. And as I said, just go onto YouTube, you can find a talk I did at Wisdom 2.0 and you know, at various other places on this subject. Don't think that service drains you. It actually allows the cup to fill. So let's hear from someone else. What did you see? What did you learn? What was your edge? Um, sort of the mental picture that I got when I heard your story was of the Virgin Mary. Mm. And um, the whole image of the Virgin and coming back to this pre-trauma state and becoming whole, and not going out and trying to find some, you know, this fix, that fix, that fix, but to really find that heart that was there before you got broken. So, and, and the whole image of Virgin and what she can teach us, and ultimately that service, I mean, she gives birth to wonderful to our inner Jesus, inner inner guru, you know, so that that's that's where I got out of the story. Thank you. Mirabai. So Mary was shattered. She was the the archetype of a shattered heart. And I think about the first thing I think about is that in her in her most pure state as a young girl when she was visited by the angel Gabriel, as was the prophet Muhammad, who was another very pure being, 
visited by a vast and terrifying angel who gave the prophetic call in no uncertain terms. And in true prophetic lineage, both Mary and, and Mohammed said, who me? That was the first response. Not like, pick me, God, I'm ready to be shattered and broken open for your, for your sake. So in, in many ways, I see that we're all, like Mary and Mohammed, reluctant prophets who are being called mm, to step up and be shattered for the sake of love. And I really connected with Mary in the midst of my own shattering as a Jewish mother who lost a child, a beloved child, and held that broken body in my arms. Mm. And that shattering was definitely the beginning of a shift um, that has cracked open everything and made, and made space for more love. But I had this very distinct memory, I have a memory, in the early days, within the first year, of being on my knees, literally on my knees, and realizing that, that, that I was shattered and that it was none of my business what came of that shattering. In other words, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to put myself back together. And right behind that, maybe from years of meditation practice, gave me a tiny little tool to remember, was, that's fine with me. I'm, it's not my, my uh, business to put anything back together. And so um, Mary is, uh, is a great guide for shattered souls. So, Mirabai, um, would you uh, uh, share that phrase again? A prophet of... Uh, uh, oh, a reluctant, reluctant prophet... Of love? A reluctant prophet of love. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that image. You're welcome. Yeah. So what else did you see? What else did you learn? Mike? Hi. Um, we did some kind of juicy, delicious processing of the hut, the tray. The, but then we, we kind of got back to that question of how do you play an iron flute that has no holes? Mm. And, and it just occurred to me, an iron flute that has no holes is not a flute. And, you know, how much of our life do we spend in these kinds of ill-informed, deluded states mm. attempting to do something that is just outside the, mm. the scope of our reach? But yet, you know, you can go through all the rigmarole of trying to play an iron flute that has no holes, but at the end of the day, it's just a pipe. <laughs> and how much of your life are you going to spend... How much of our lives are we going to spend trying to do something that just not in, it's not in God's design? Yeah. You know, and recognizing, hold it, okay, an iron flute that has no holes isn't a flute, so why pretend that it is? To follow on with that, I'm just, um, it's true, at the end of the day, it's just a pipe. 
And um, also, at the end of the day, um, we chant four vows that are just completely impossible to realize. Creations are numberless. I vow to free them. Wow. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transform them. Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it. And the awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. Well, that's just impossible. So like that iron flute, are you going to opt for futility? And not to blame, cast blame, but I think it's a big wake-up call. It's impossible to free them all. It's impossible to return Nepal to its former state before the war, not just only before the earthquake. It's impossible to bring the lives back whose lives are lost. It's impossible to liberate all creations and we still show up and serve. And we don't opt for futility. And we don't stay in the village getting drunk. We show up and we show up and we show up again and maybe we present the wrong thing or not the right thing or quite the right thing and what is being called for is exactly what we're engendering, cultivating, nourishing in this time together, which is the courage to love, which is intimacy. Yeah. So thank you for your words. It's just a pipe, and we still play it. It's one note when we play. It's the note of freedom. There's only one whole. And that carries the note of freedom. Thank you. What else did you see? What else did you learn? Um, I had to wonder whether the monk would have accepted a glued-together tray and whether one could drill more holes in the iron flute. You know, you're back on that first koan, Kyogen's <laughs> Man in a Tree. You know, often we go for a solution that kind of sticks things together or disrupts things, and actually we're asked to do something else, which is to abandon solutions and to move into intimacy. And that's the deep challenge. That's why we called our time together the courage to love because, you know, we'd get stick them and try to stick the tray together instead of accepting the truth of impermanence, right? Or we'd drill notes into the iron flute, right? Instead of being able to see, oh, there's one note, the note of freedom. Play it. So that is such a powerful um, 
path that we choose not to take. And that is the path of solutions. And to really hang from the tree or to keep showing up until intimacy arises. So thanks. Mirabai. Well, the, the teachings of the dark night of the soul are all about allowing ourselves to be suspended in radical not knowingness and that all of our efforts to mend the problem of the human condition eventually become, whether we like it or not, present themselves as being insoluble and, and our task is to let ourselves down into, into that radical state of emptiness and that's where, where the, what John calls the ineffable sweetness rises. Of course, you can't bank on that. You can't bargain for that experience but um, it seems to make itself available when we stop trying to solve what we perceive as the problem of, of the human condition. Thanks. Or not. Sometimes it doesn't show up. <coughs> the ineffable sweetness is, sometimes does not show up. So my little um, reply is having so many people pass through my life, um, sometimes not this lifetime. You can't make yourself too crazy because it's not working out for others. You know, as I said, the buildings are down, the people are dead. Well, not this lifetime. Sering died in the Bodhigandaki. May he have a fortunate rebirth, having given his own life to save another. So it's deeply accepting, coming to home to the truth of impermanence. And maybe not this lifetime. I said to Bernie once, uh, I said, you know, Bernie, Bernie Glass, but I said, you know, you know, there's somebody in this training we're doing and wow, um, wow, you know, I just feel like not this lifetime kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I don't feel like I can be of any use to this person at all. And, ugh, wow. What do you do about this kind of situation? <laughs> he said, I ignore it. And he didn't mean exactly like, you know, ignoring it. It's kind of like the look I feel from Neem Karoli Baba. You know, dwelling in emptiness, dwelling in boundlessness. You know, sometimes it just doesn't work out like you'd like it to. And you've got the capacity to not be caught in the narrative. You still show up, but there's no gaining idea. There's no attachment to outcome. So how can you do your best on one hand 
but also not be attached to outcome. And that's part of what the maturation on the path is about. Of, as I said yesterday and the day before, how do we cultivate a grandmother's heart, that kind of wisdom that allows you to not abandon, but to ignore the desire to push for a perfect outcome even while doing your best, even while showing up with another tray. I work a lot with young activists and who are really seeming to exemplify this understanding that there's no difference between contemplative life and life of service in the world. The whole distinction makes no sense to them. Many of you are in this room who I know really embody this. And yet, uh, I grew up in a family of, of activists, anti-war activists in the 60s, and, and there was definitely an undercurrent of anger and attachment to outcomes and, um, and anger that, that people weren't getting it right. And what I'm finding with, with many of you who, who are younger and emerging into this, into this kind of sacred activist state is that you understand from meditation practice and other kinds of spiritual practices that your task is exactly what you're saying, Roshi, which is to show up anyway, even, um, even if the outcomes aren't at all what, what you are hoping for, and you just show up with love and tenderness and, and a, a spaciousness to hold what is. I don't see how we can be of service without going inside and turning inward and, and getting quiet sometimes so that we don't believe everything we think. So everything that we need is in that small hut. And in a way, we're asked to understand that um, that small hut is the rich field of all of our life. And the tray that is broken in the koan can actually never be broken. And this is what the teacher in every one of us is calling for. That which serves, which is the love in our human heart and our deep concern for others. At the deepest level, that can never be broken. So please test these words and test Mirabai's words. Thank you. Thank you.